0: Peter chapter 2. I want to begin um, with verse 9 again. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again just are um, grateful, Lord, beyond words that you have taken us who um, were, as Romans says, helpless and sinners, enemies and ungodly, and brought us, God, into relationship with you, yourself, made us sons and daughters of the King of kings. I pray, God, that our hearts will just be again encouraged and strengthened and who you are in us, and who we are in Christ. And that our identity, Lord, in Jesus, would grip us and sustain us and move us, God, as we live in a world where we are aliens and strangers. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we looked at this passage that I just read last Sunday, When I spent a fair amount of time um, just trying to establish that um, Peter is talking to Christian Jews, it has a lot of application for those of us who are Gentile um, Christians, but though Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are absolutely one in Christ, the Christian does not become a spiritual Jew when he receives Christ. And so there are a number of things in this list here that, that Peter's talking about that do apply directly to us, but not all of them. And because the issue here is identity, and what is our identity as Christians, it's important I think to come back to it at least briefly, um, not planning on spending the whole sermon on it, but it, I felt like it was important to come back to this. Recall the context of this letter, Christian Jews who are aliens and strangers scattered throughout Europe because of their faith in Christ. Now, I, have, I cannot say that I have ever been persecuted for my faith the way that many of our brothers and sisters are in Christ today. But I tell you, when I look back at junior high, <laughs> I think, man alive, why are they still legal? Um, it was a hard time. For me, and I wasn't being persecuted for my faith, but I I was regularly um, just abused for being little and 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 you know wrong um, everything, and it, and and so I'm telling you, you you thank God for mom and dads during times like that, and I remember. Um, Because my mom was, was always at home when I came home from school, she was the one that usually was the first one to see how crestfallen I was when I came home, to put it mildly. And so she was there first to comfort me and encourage me, but really what she was doing as I look back on it, she was orienting me to what my real identity is, because I was having an identity issue. That's what persecution does. Whether it's whether it's, it's for your faith or whether whatever it is, the, it, it basically persecution, ostracization hits at us at the issue of what is our identity. When you think about it, who am I, and why is this happening to me? Right. And so, if you've you know, and you know, the kids are asking this question when you when you have Christian parents who have lost their jobs, lost their homes. And those kids are going, who are we and why is this happening to us? And is it worth it, right? That's what these kinds of trials always do. They strike at the heart of the question, who are we? And so with that in mind, Peter writes and he says, let me remind you of your identity, who you are. And so in verse 9, he says, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, A people for God's own possession. And that's just the beginning of it. This is who you are. Now, we are not Israel. 77 times, as I mentioned last week, the word Israel is used in the New Testament. And you can look up every one of them. And when you read them, every single one makes perfect sense as literal Israel. None of them have to be understood as a spiritual Israel. And so there is no place in the Bible where the church is called Israel. There is no verse that says the church is Israel. That verse does not exist. And so it's an allegorization, a spiritualization of the text to make it say that the church is Israel when the church never says, when the when the text never says that. We are not Israel. We Gentile Christians are not a chosen race. We are not a holy nation. That is Israel. A chosen race, a holy nation. The church is not a race. It's multiracial. The church is not a nation. It is multinational. But we are a royal priesthood. We are a people who belong to God. We are to proclaim his excellencies. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We once were not his people, and now we are his people. We once had not received mercy, and now we have received mercy. So there's a lot of this that directly applies to us. We would expect that. There are a lot of similarities between Israel and the church. We would expect those similarities because we have a common source, God. We have a common beginning. We were sinners in need of saving grace. And we have a common purpose, and that is to bring glory to our God, who is our Redeemer. But there are also distinctives. The church is many peoples and many races. And the church has never been promised land. The church has never been promised that if you walk with God, that he will bless your socks off materially and circumstantially. What the church has been promised, if you walk with God, you will be persecuted. Completely different set of promises to the church than to Israel. But what I want to look at in a little more depth is that we, both Israel and the church, are priests unto God. Not according to Aaron, but according to the priesthood of Christ, the order of Melchizedek. We looked at that some in the book of Hebrews a few years ago. So where does this doctrine of the priesthood of believers come from if not from here in 1 Peter chapter 2? Largely comes from the book of Revelation. So don't lose your place in 1 Peter, but go to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, this is written to the seven churches, Gentile churches by and large, who happen to be in the same area of Asia Minor that Peter was writing to for the dispersed Jewish Christians. But Revelation 1, beginning in verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Verse 6, he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we, well, this is identity. We are a kingdom and we are priest. So what is a priest? So I think about that. Didn't take me very long because I have small thoughts. But I'm thinking a priest, we know, is a minister of God, okay? He ministers to men, but he also ministers to God. God has raised him up for a ministry, and God defines the ministry. In the Old Testament, that ministry was sacrifices and offerings. God said, this is how you operate. And it is a ministry to me when you do these things in faith and obedience. So they're a minister, A priest is also a teacher. In the Old Testament, the priests were responsible for teaching the ordinances of God, the word of God, to the nation of Israel. So if the people were ignorant of God's word, it was the priest's fault. They were the ones who were supposed to be teaching the people. Ministers and teachers and intercessors. They were the ones that were supposed to be praying on behalf of the people the high priest once a year bringing the sins of the people into the very holy of holies so that there could be atonement made for those sins. He was interceding for the people. Those were the three primary roles of a priest, a minister, an intercessor, and what was the third one? Teacher, Teacher. Teacher right. See, I told you, short, short time span too, my thoughts. <laughs> But those, that's not identity. See, this is, this is the trap. We all are prone to identify with what we do. That we think that's our identity. But the priest's identity was not in his activity. Because the main distinctive of a priest was that he was holy. See, priests were holy unto God. They had been separated from the world and separated unto God. That was their identity, not their activity, but rather that they were holy. They occupied a position that no one else in the nation of Israel had. And so when when the Lord Jesus says, we are priests, he doesn't even say because you are intercessors or because you're teachers or because whatever. He just says, you're a priest because you're God's it has to do with the identity of position not activity so don't lose that thought i want you to go back to 1 peter chapter 1 and remember what he says here in chapter 1 concerning all these people he says in verse 1 chapter 1 verse 14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Mm -hmm. That's the core idea. Mm -hmm. That's the issue of identity that you have been separated from and separated unto. It's not just from your former lust. But unto God, you are a holy, distinct people. That is true for Jewish Christians, and that is also true true for Gentile believers. So also in in the book of Revelation, so that first verse, Revelation 1-6, we are a kingdom and we are priests to God. But in chapter 5, in verse 10, there's a second reference to us being priests. And you have made them to be a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And so now a second thought is introduced: we are God's priest, and the day is coming when we will reign with Him on the earth. So these is and that gets into maybe why Peter refers to the to the to the Christian as a royal priesthood. He is not going to just just administer the sacrifices and offerings, but he's going to reign. Because the Levitical priest didn't rule. But we will rule. We will reign with him. And then the third reference is in Revelation is Revelation 20 in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So now we're given the time span that we will reign with him a thousand years, holy, separated unto God, priests of God, who will reign with him on earth for a thousand years. But get it, it doesn't say we will be priests. Because that thousand-year reign is yet to come, but it says we are priest. This is our identity. The priesthood, the theologians like to call it, the priesthood of the believers. So what does that mean? I believe that, that any good church recognizes two essential principles for church governance. And that is, first of all, and above all, the headship of Jesus Christ. It is his church. It is not anyone else's church. It's not the preacher's church. It's not the elder's church. It's not the congregation's church. It is the church of Jesus Christ. It is his church. And headship means not only that he does he own it, but he runs it. He rules over it. He directs it. And when a church is not looking to Jesus Christ for direction, then that church is in rebellion against the head. And so that has to take place. And a lot of churches give lip service to it, but when you actually look to what's going on, is the leadership of the church, because it's top-down, if it's not true in the leadership, it's not going to be true in the pew, is the leadership of the church Actively seeking God for the decisions that it makes. Is it looking to go to God's word? And is it looking to have oneness of mind? Does it pray purposefully because it it knows it needs to hear from Jesus? Is it not going to move if it hasn't heard from Jesus? And when it has heard from Jesus, will it move in faith? See, most churches, sadly enough, are not functioning as entities that believe they can hear from God and do what God says. It's basically just an organization of people who are doing what they think they need to do. The headship of Jesus Christ is the primary principle of church governance. And the second one is the priesthood of the believers. And what that means is, and this is where Martin Luther had it right, because he was a priest, a Catholic priest, and didn't know Jesus. And he got saved because he started reading his Bible. And as he stayed in this Bible and kept reading it, he realized, Catholic priests are not the only priests. And there's nothing in the Bible about priest and laity. In the Bible, we're all priests. And so Martin Luther wrote, and he says, God didn't do away with with the priesthood. God did away with the laity. So so there is no division between priest and common person. We are all priests. Well, that's pretty radical. Because if we're all priests, we're all ministers unto God. We are all intercessors. We are all teachers, and we are all in a place where we can be taught by God. And so it doesn't have to be handed down from on high. You have to go and become a priest. And then you have to go listen to a priest before you can hear from God. And Martin Luther's going, where's that in our Bible? The Spirit of God dwells equally and fully in every Christian. That's the priesthood of the believers. There is no Christian who has more of the Holy Spirit than another Christian. You really know that? Believe that. So even when we talk about the anointing of the Spirit, a lot of times, I mean, listen, when I listen to what people are saying when they talk about the anointing of the Spirit, I hear that person has more of the Spirit. That is not true. Now they may be under a, have a, or, or experiencing a greater enabling because the Spirit of God gives enabling. They may be and the, and the scripture says that God, the Spirit of God gives the gifts, but He gives them in various portions. So one person will have a greater portion of a gift than another, but they don't have more or less of the Holy Spirit. You can have greater or less portions of a, of a gift, but you do not have more or less of the Holy Spirit. So the most godly spiritual person you have ever met doesn't have one ounce of. Of the Holy Spirit more than you do because the Holy Spirit's a person and either you have him or you don't and if you don't have him you're not saved and if you do have him then you're saved and you are a priest under God so identity is very very important and when he focuses on priesthood his main thing that he's focusing on is that we are holy. We are the people of God. And when the world treats us like trash, well, what do you expect? But that's not our identity. Paul says the world treats us like trash. He used those words. But Paul understood that my identity is in Christ. And sometimes it takes persecution for us to really take a good sobering look at who we are. And so we can thank God how God uses trials and difficulties and rejection to bring us back to the truth that my identity is nothing that this world can give me. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the second letter of Corinthians chapter 5, he says, we are not people who take pride in appearance. He says, for the love of Christ controls us having concluded that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we, Christians, we recognize no man according to the flesh. What is the flesh? The outward stuff. The stuff of our humanity. It's not necessarily sinful stuff. So, Oh, man, that guy dresses like he's got a lot of money. That's recognizing people according to the flesh. Oh, he drives a nice car. He drives a bad car. That's recognizing people according to the flesh. That person's been to college. That person hadn't been to college. That person's tall. That person's short. That person's skinny. That person's stout. That's all recognizing according to the flesh. And Paul says, we don't do that. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, see, that's the identity, is he in Christ? If he is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old ways of evaluating people, of assessing people, that's what the context, the old things, the old way of looking at people, it's gone Behold, new things have come. And we of all people should be the last ones to evaluate and judge others according to the outward things of the flesh. Because we know our identity has nothing to do with those things. Our identity is we are in Christ. And Christ is in us. And nothing else matters beyond that. So no wonder Peter feels with these people who are being treated as the scum of the earth he needs to remind them they are not scum. They are chosen. They are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's people. This would have been powerful for them to hear. Sometimes you just need somebody to sit you down and put their arm around you and say, I love you, and you mean the world to me. Right? And for a Christian, that is in Jesus. And we're going, man, you're the Lord's, and you are precious in his sight. I know what the world's telling you. The world tells us all that. But don't believe it. It's lies. They don't know what they're talking about. But we know the truth. We know who we are. And it's because we are in Christ. We are new creatures. And we are his own possession. We've been brought out of darkness into light. We had not received mercy and now we have. So in verse 11 of 1 Peter, coming back to that, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Okay, remember, two aspects to being holy. Separated from and separated unto. It's not enough to be separated from. Okay, because you can be a monk, you're separated from, but that did not make you holy. Right? But it's separated from is part of the equation. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, you have been separated from. May not have been by your own choice, but it's happened to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. So what are fleshly lusts? Well, our minds often take us to sensual things, sexual things. That doesn't even begin to touch it. It would certainly be included. But again, What would be the fleshly lust of people who are persecuted for their faith? Do you think it's really sexual? I don't think so. I think it's to be accepted by those who are persecuting you. To be liked. Maybe to have freedom. The liberty to be able to go and live wherever you want and not have to worry that somebody's going to come and burn your house down. Maybe it's just the the desire for stability, to have a job, to have a regular income, to have a roof over your head. So Those aren't inherently sinful, but those are all the concerns and the weights that come from just living in a fallen world where you're persecuted for your faith. And they are fleshly. They have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. Nothing to do with eternity, but all to do with my life and my comfort and my acceptance and just living in a world that hates us. They are fleshly. And they are lust because I really, really want it. And it really, really upsets me and depresses me when it's not there. I mean who wants to live in a society where just because of your your faith, you're a Christian in a Muslim society, or because of your race, that you know every time you step out the door, you're gonna suffer. There's gonna be some look, some statement. You can't be assured that you're gonna be treated fairly. I remember the only time I've ever been to the Philippines, and Patsy and I were standing at, at in the airport at the ticket counter, and because we were white, we were not going to get the service, everybody else there. I'd never experienced that kind of prejudice, and people were pushing against us and pushing ahead of us, and... And even the ticket counter agent was looking at people because it was obvious what was going on. And it wasn't just, you know, we don't know, you know, we think we always have to step in line. And it was clear this is because we are not Filipino. We're white. Wow. But to live every single moment of every day knowing you're going to face that, what are you going to be craving for? It's not illegitimate. It's not wrong. God, does this really need to happen? Because we know it's not going to be that way in eternity. When we reign with Christ, all that stuff's going to be gone. But we have to put up with this stuff all the time. And it's getting worse. And when people find out we're Christians, all the different stuff that comes against us, just because we're His, we shouldn't expect that it's going to get any better. And so we just, we want to say we long for, we desire. But Peter cuts to it. We lust for. And we become craving and demanding and angry. Peter says, put it aside. Abstain means have nothing to do with it. You can't do that unless you know your identity and you know this is temporary stuff and it is not always going to be this way. See, identity gives hope. Identity gives strength. We've got to understand who our, what our identity is. These kinds of fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. Any kind of lust does. Every kind of lust does. Because lust says, I want it now. And see, the soul is constituted for peace and rest. What's taking away your peace and rest? <coughs> Probably your lust. Think about it. What robs us of peace and rest? There may be a lust involved in there. We're fleshly lust. We're not getting what we want. And the peace and rest is gone. Christmas is a time of celebrating peace and rest. Jesus is that peace and rest. And there is no peace and rest outside of him. There really isn't. Lust, wage, against peace and rest. Wage war. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Not just good. We can do good. Especially when everybody around you is doing bad. We can do better than bad, right? It's like everybody in the classroom, you know, is below average. You know, it's not hard to be above average. But he doesn't say do better than those around us. He says excellent behavior. Well, now it takes us beyond ourselves into the realm that God's got to do it. Because it's, it's excellent on par with God. Keep your behavior excellent. Going beyond what other people would expect. I worked for a gravel pit that no longer exists um, down the road, where the Rim and and, Lock and Terra are now. And, um, you know, and I, I worth ethic was drilled into me by my parents. And um, they just, they both worked hard. I remember one time my dad sent me outside and told me to, to rake up the um, clippings from the hedge out in front. And I did and I did it as quickly as I could because there were people visiting and I wanted to visit with them and, and so I did the job and went in and, and, um, and my dad saw that I hadn't done it as thoroughly as he wanted and, and he made me go back out there and finish the job and I couldn't visit with these people that were there. Really upset me. And I could barely see what the clippings because I was crying out there as I was raking because I was so upset that I couldn't be with these people that were visiting but I I learned to do a job well it was a good lesson should have done it right the first time so I went to work at that gravel pit you know I've learned my identity is in Christ Jesus gave me this job and I'm working for Jesus and so I was always looking for stuff to do. And, and, you know, my job was to was to learn how to make asphalt, which meant sitting in a little control room and, you know, watching the guy turn the switches. Never did learn what that was all about. But when, that, when there was no asphalt being made and I didn't have to sit in the control room, I felt bad about sitting there, so I'd look for stuff to do. And there was always spillover of gravel on the on the conveyor belt outside that had to be had to be raked out and and shoveled up, and so I was always outside doing that, just cleaning the place up. And my one ambition was just to be faithful to Jesus. But the other men, they thought I was trying to... um, I, I don't even think... How can you use it in church language? They thought I was trying to, you know, make myself look good to the bosses. And never entered my mind. Trying to look good to the bosses. It was about just serving God with excellence. But your coworkers don't always like that because it makes them look bad. Right? But what is our identity? Is it what the coworkers give us, or is it what Christ gives us? See, even by making your keeping your behavior excellent, you are going to incur persecution. Right? So this doesn't alleviate persecution. This could cause more persecution to do the very thing that Peter's saying. He knows what he's saying. He's not naive. Keep your behavior excellent. Doesn't matter what the others are doing. Your boss gives you a half hour lunch break and everybody's taking two hours? Take a half hour lunch break. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing around us. Keep your behavior excellent. Think about Daniel. Was his behavior excellent among the Gentiles? You better believe it. Man. And his enemies recognized that they would find no ground of accusation against him at any level except in his faith. If somehow they could pass a law to make his faith illegal, then they could get him because they knew he would never compromise. Compromise his faith. But in all his dealings, working with a bunch of pagans who wanted to kill him, he kept his behavior excellent among them. And they still wanted to kill him. They killed Jesus, and his behavior was excellent. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... Because we're going to be slandered. Whether your behavior is excellent or not, we're going to be slandered. So settle it. This happens to Christians. And I'm convinced a lot of times the people who slander us don't even understand why they're doing it because it's a a spiritual battle between light and darkness and they're the darkness and they don't even understand why they hate us so much. They really don't know why. But we need to understand and embrace it. This is what happens when you have been taken out of darkness into the light. The darkness hates the light. And we are going to be hated. We are going to be slandered. And you can be slandered as an evildoer or you can be slandered as a good doer. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount... He said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. If you get fired get fired because you did a better job than everybody else. Not because you did a worse job than everybody else. And you could get fired for working harder than everybody else. Being more honest, more trustworthy than everybody else. They're going to slander you one way or another. But, then he says again in verse 12, that in the things in which they slander as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds... As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the day of visitation may be when God returns in judgment. And they will have to give an account, as Scripture says, for everything they've ever done, including the persecution of Christians. And they will not be able to say, Those Christians kept me from faith because of the way that they failed to live. But they will have, God will say, who among my people was a stumbling block to you? Who among my people gave you legitimate cause to not believe in Jesus Christ? And hopefully there'll be no one. Wouldn't that be great? If there was no one that the unbeliever could point to and say, I couldn't see Jesus and I didn't want to see Jesus because of what I saw in one of your people. Because we kept our behavior excellent. But there are people around us who use us as an excuse for not coming to faith in Christ. Because they go, if you're what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. I didn't, wouldn't have thought this was an actual true story, but I came across this. And they give all the names and dates, so it must be true. In the summer of 1805, A number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among other things, the chief said, Brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree, as you can all read the book? Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while, while we see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider what you have to say." Wow. But see that's what Peter's talking about. Keep your accent, your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, because you're going to get slandered. but the day of visitation is coming. And when it comes, those people who are slandering you will be giving glory to God, because you lived in such a way that God could be seen in your life. And maybe, because it does happen, there'll be people who when Jesus comes knocking at their door before he returns to this earth, and he knocks on the door of their heart, and Jesus says to them, I want you. Would you open the door? And that person starts thinking about the different Christians who have told them about faith in Christ. And now they're having a visit from Jesus in their hearts. And they go, if Jesus... If these people who have been telling me about Jesus, if they are anything like Jesus, I want Jesus. And they open their doors, the door of their heart, to Christ when Christ visits them. We should be a reason that people believe and not an excuse for their unbelief. So that when God visits them, they will respond in faith and give glory to God. So, I didn't mean to give two sermons on the same passage of Scripture, but I really just felt like that it would be important to come back and just focus on identity here. And how important it is for us to, in all of our ways, acknowledge the Lord Jesus because we belong to Him. So easy, because we all so desperately want acceptance, and nobody enjoys being rejected. But we need to understand it is a fleshly lust to be accepted and not to be rejected. It is a fleshly lust. And it'll cause us to compromise and live in such a way that people would never see Jesus simply because we are lusting for their acceptance and fearing their rejection. We are his people a priesthood unto God. We belong to Him. And as such, we are holy. And that is our core identity. I will close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for your gracious work in each of us, that you have called us out of darkness into light by your marvelous love. We were a people who had not received mercy, and now we have. We have been purchased by by the very blood of Jesus Christ, not with precious things like gold and silver. We are not our own, but we are yours. All of these things, God, are who we are. So many people, even our brothers and sisters, God, can beat us down and cause us to think that we are worthless when you say we are priceless. Precious in your sight. Work in us, God, by your spirit. That we would believe the truth, be ruled by the truth, be set free from all these fleshly lusts because of the truth. And At this time, oh God especially, when we are again coming into the season, we remember Christ coming into this world. Where he knew he would be rejected, despised of men, forsaken. That we too, O Lord, would recognize that this world is not our home, but you love it and you want everyone in it to be saved. And that our peace and our rest would not be derived from how the world treats us, but solely because we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. Thank you, God, for all that you are to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.